Question 98, what are the sacraments of the New Covenant? The answer is, the sacraments of the New Covenant are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Question 99, how do baptism and the Lord's Supper become effectual means of salvation? And the answer is, baptism and the Lord's Supper become effectual means of salvation, not from any virtue in them or in him that administers them, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of his spirit in those who by faith receive him. It's a wonderfully balanced answer. Uh, I think you, you'll recognize that if you don't already by the end of the short lesson. All right, wonderful answer. A question one, how many sacraments are there in the new covenant? The short answer is only two only two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Remember, sacraments or ordinances, especially worship ordinances, go with covenants. Outside of the covenant, the ordinance isn't, isn't an ordinance. It's not enforced. When a covenant comes into force, it brings with it certain worship practices. So there are no other worship practices instituted by Jesus Christ which visibly picture him and his work and are means of grace for our salvation. Just these two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The sacraments of the Old Covenant are fulfilled in Christ and so are, according to Hebrews 8.13, obsolete, that's the word that's used, aging, and have disappeared. And of course, because Christ is the king of his church, he's the only uh, judge and lawmaker, no one else may add sacraments to the new covenant except Christ. He alone can ordain. All right? So, that's question one. How many sacraments? Two. Baptism and Lord's Supper in the New Covenant. Questions about that? Improvements? Wes. Yeah, maybe I'm just not familiar with the language. Um, and so you could help clarify this to me a little bit. Is I, I read baptism and the Lord's Supper become effectual means of salvation in my head I'm thinking I thought faith was the means of salvation you know like the work of Christ applied to us you know through faith mm -hmm. and so maybe I'm, I'm uh, conflating categories there but to me that language seems kind of challenging maybe almost like uh, you must do the sacraments to be saved right or something like that we did address this question, at least indirectly, in an earlier um, lesson, I, I believe. Um, a couple of points. First, um, you're right. Faith, faith is the thing. Faith is the ultimate instrument. And you'll notice that it's uh, in, our, uh, in our answer of question 99. Uh, faith has to be present. So they aren't, these aren't automatic means. Um, and also, when we say salvation here, again, earlier lessons made it clear that what we mean by that is 
um, what we would normally call sanctification. In other words, there's no claim that these things justify us. Not by faith or not by faith. These don't justify us. Only the work of Jesus Christ um, justifies us as we by faith take hold of him. However, there are things that God uses to keep saving us. Remember, salvation is a three-tenths operation. It's past, present, and future. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. Well, the means for being saved, for continuing to be upheld, if you were, is, is this kind of language, um, the, means, the means of grace. We would call ourselves as a church, or at least I certainly would, an ordinary means of grace kind of church. By that, we mean that fundamentally, we think God gives us grace as we place our faith in Christ, as we hear his word, as we pray, as we take these sacraments, and do, and do other things. But those would be the primary ways, right? And then in the future, the means of salvation is, is simply the sheer power of God to um, finish the transformation uh, by his spirit, whereby sanctification becomes glorification, whereby the dead body becomes resurrection and reunited. Um, so at each stage of salvation, there are different means God uses, or at least that are emphasized. I think that would be the right way to say it. Um, but in today's modern culture, this language sounds very strange. Sounds, it sounds like it's against the solas of sola, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. It, it sounds against that, but it's absolutely not. Um, it's simply the means whereby those things come to us. This is classic historic Christianity from the early church, yes, abused in, in places, but then rescued again in the Reformation. Our early Baptist forefathers absolutely believed these things. We know that not only because this is their catechism, um, but you can read it in their writings. But this all got lost in the 1800s. Um, easy believism, a, a reductionism, whereby the only thing that mattered was, was you really going forward in a, in a very emotional meeting uh, beginning in the 1820s and 30s and, and making a profession of Christ. That's what we preached against this morning. If you had faith one time and you don't now, you're not saved, right? So, so how do we continue to exercise faith and how does our faith grow? It does it through the means God's established. Um, and some of those means are are the sacraments. Is that... Yeah. Other, yeah. Uh, other questions was, or follow-ups? I, I, I was making an error on, on two fronts. Yeah, like, like what it meant to be an effective means. And then the other was the tents of salvation. I was thinking of, you know, the, I guess, the consummated end of salvation and whether that, uh, those means were what brought about that effect. And, and I think when you, when you 
clarified that you know the different tenses yeah we are we are being saved through hearing the word preached um, reading the word praying you know other areas that God shows us grace but doesn't mean that each one of those is, is required or is, is necessary because I mean the thief on the cross and, and I'm sure right. many who right. never made it to their first right. uh, service to hear the word read or preached uh, that's right so they could still be saved so yeah that helped thank you yeah, and again, I think Baptists have historically been quite balanced in this. We obviously value baptism and the supper. I mean, we're, we're a whole denomination that in some people's view are, are rather exclusivists because we insist on a single meaning to baptism. Um, so we obviously don't downplay the importance, but um, we absolutely believe a person can be saved and get to heaven and not be baptized. You know, is that ideal? No. Is that, is that if you have the ability to disobey, the ability to be baptized and, and you choose not to, is that disobedience to Christ? Yes. Is that a serious matter? Yes. But, but it, isn't, um, it isn't the difference between, it isn't necessarily the difference between salvation and, and damnation. Um, in, in early Baptist life, uh, children were not, were not baptized. It was, it was an adult, um, function. Um, and you can read over and over again, uh, parents and pastors, uh, ministering to their children who fear that because they, uh, believe, but haven't been immersed, uh, they won't be in heaven. And they uniformly answer that correctly. No, that, that will not stop you, dear one, little one, from uh, going to heaven. Yeah. All right, question two. Why don't we observe the seven Roman Catholic sacraments? Uh, now it's time for me to be lit, as they say. The answer is, because we walk by faith in the word of God and not by superstition. Boom. That's the right answer. Because we walk by faith in the word of God, not by superstition. Because except for baptism and the Lord's Supper, which they do corrupt, the Roman Catholic sacraments are not instituted by Christ as sacraments. And of course, even their baptism and their mass are not to be observed because they do it with unlawful additions and changes. Will worship and superstition has fundamentally changed the character of those two things, and I personally do not count them to any longer be the Lord's Supper and baptism. It's only these two sacraments that are to be observed, and they're to be observed according to Christ's command. That is, according to the instruction found in the Word which when we believe it and do it, that's when we observe them by faith. Remember, faith has content. When God teaches us what's true and we believe it, obviously we want to do it. And when we do that, we're not obeying God uh, in our own strength or any other way. We're obeying him in faith. Faith isn't empty. It rests in God's revelation. Um, 
by the way, uh, this probably would be helpful to know, when I condemn the Roman Mass and the Roman infant baptism, I, I do not want to equate um, that with, for example, other Protestant views of baptism or the supper. I don't happen to have a Lutheran view of those things, but I think those are at least usually of a fundamentally different character um, in, uh, yeah, fundamentally different character. I agree with John Knox and John Calvin that, uh, well, as Knox said in one of his most famous little treatises, uh, the Roman Mass is idolatry. That was the that was the title of a book. <laughs> um, I, I don't believe Protestant ones are at least typically that. I, I don't believe they have to be. The fact that they may look similar in some respects doesn't make them the same thing any more than ours being like theirs makes them the same thing. Um, do any of you or all of you know the seven Roman Catholic sacraments? Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, there are certain of you that know them. Yeah, right, there's baptism, <clears throat> there's confirmation, penance, ordination, marriage, the mass, and extreme unction. And that would be the order in which a person would or could ordinarily experience them over the course of their life. It begins with uh, baptism and ends with extreme unction. Uh, we, we agree that some of these things are important in Christian Christians' lives. We believe in ordination. We believe in marriage. We don't believe they're sacraments. They are institutions of God. They're not, um, they're not items of worship per se. They don't point to Christ and the benefits of his grace. And the others, we, we believe, and the churches overwhelmingly believe through the centuries, are simply misuses of texts of Scripture or misapplications of, of otherwise good uh, practices. Uh, confirmation, for those of you who don't know, is anointing someone with ho holy oil and laying on of hands. And what that is supposed to do is ratify salvation. In it, grace comes to them. That, of course it does. They believe it's a sacrament. Penance, those are act, outward acts of repentance where the priesthood assigns them to you and then absolves your sins. Again, grace is given. Ordination, this is the laying on of hands in ordaining priests, for example. And again, grace is given. Marriage, that's a picture of our union with Christ. To that we agree. But it's not instituted in the church as a sign or a sacrament. It is a civil act. In fact, the Puritans and the early Baptists believed that it was a civil act so strongly that they uh, would not, they refused to be married in a church or by a preacher. We're so used to a preacher marrying us because the laws of our country uh, allow that. Uh, but a few hundred years ago, that's not what would have happened. It would have always been something like a justice of the peace, a, um, a judge, some state-authorized uh, position would have done that. Finally, extreme unction, that's the anointing of the sick who are near death with oil. Again, that's not a sacramental rite. 
Any question about any of those? Those are the ones we typically hear about. Question three gets us to some, if you grew up in fundamentalism or uh, Anabaptist life or something like that, you might have heard these as ordinances or even as sacraments. Three, didn't Christ ordain foot washing and the laying on of hands as sacraments? And my answer, trying to be careful, is no, not as sacraments. I do think there is a sense in which Christ ordained them, or at least authorized them, but they're not sacraments. You see, it's easy. I, when I was growing up, it was very easy for Baptists to point the finger at uh, the Roman Catholics, you know, those really, really bad Roman Catholics, and look what they've done by adding all of these things outside of Scripture. But, of course, other Baptists and other people very much like us did the exact same thing. Um, the Roman Church is not the only one guilty of adding to the number of sacraments in the New Covenant. So have Baptists and brethren and evangelicals at large. To be fair, most of those who have urged these two practices, that is, foot washing and the laying on of hands, I wouldn't have called them sacraments, but ordinances. Um, in some of them, they would have argued they conveyed grace, so they would be a sacrament. But others argued that they didn't. It was simply a something to follow Christ. To, it's simply an act of obedience, period, and nothing more. But they do make them, ordinarily, new covenant institutions required by his church for all to practice. And they've had the same status as the sacraments in those churches. I don't know if any of you happen to be listening to my uh, 12-minute long weekly Baptist podcast, Baptist History podcast, but can any of you tell me um, one of our early Baptist fathers who believed in one of these things and which one it was? Anyone know? Ha ha, here's my way of finding you out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You get half credit, young man. Benjamin Keach. Benjamin Keach. You get the other half of the credit. Yes. <laughs> yes, Benjamin Keach, uh, the most prominent preacher in London uh, and signer of the 1689 uh, toward the end of the 1600s, he believed that the laying on of hands was a third ordinance. He believed it was a sacrament. He believed that grace was conveyed. Um, it was to be given between the time that a person was baptized and before they were brought to the supper, which was normally all in one meeting. So you would experience all three of these the same day. You would be baptized as you would be brought into um, the church building because the baptistry was, was almost never you know, inside a church building back then. Um, you would have hands laid on you by the congregation to show that they recognized you as being a true Christian. And and you were invited to the table. Yeah, I mean, you had the great privilege of then partaking in the supper of the Lord. But again, all three were thought to convey grace. Um, does anyone know what prominent confession, Baptist confession, um, the laying on of hands is included as an ordinance or sacrament? Anybody know? Probably not 1689. 
Right. So, right. <laughs> You're very close. So the Savoy? No. It's No, it's out of Pennsylvania. Yeah. Wow. I I'll see you after class. Oh. Oh. <laughs> yes, my wife got it right. It's actually the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. Now, many people think that the Philadelphia Confession of Faith is identical to the 1689. And in fact, sometimes when you buy a, a modern copy, it is exactly word for word the same. However, the original Philadelphia contained two extra paragraphs, and one of them taught the laying on of hands as an ordinance or sacrament of the church. And that was the confession of faith that spread all across the United States. And when people say, oh, so much of the South and so many of the Baptists in this country are rooted in the 1689, well, technically they're rooted in the Philadelphia. And the Philadelphia is actually just a slight bit different. And this is one of the two places. The other place it's different is it overtly taught the singing of more than psalms. It said that humanly composed hymns should be sung in worship. All right. Uh, anyone know who and and Nettie Miller is not allowed to answer. Does anyone know who introduced those teachings uh, to the co what back then would have been the colonies in the very late 1600s? Anyone know? Well, interestingly, the oldest son of Benjamin Keach. His name was Elias, and he came to this country to get away from his dad. He wasn't a believer, and he was sick and tired of being preached at, so he got on a ship and he came to the colonies, and when he got here he realized he was going to have to work to eat. Well, there was one thing he knew how to do as, as I think he was 19. He knew how to preach because he'd heard his dad hundreds, maybe thousands of times. So he pretended to be a preacher. And one day while preaching in either New Jersey or Pennsylvania, right on the Delaware River, he began to preach and he came under conviction of sin from his own preaching and was converted. There's a good extra biblical proof that the human being preaching is not the only one preaching, right? Christ was there. And there was an elderly Baptist pastor named uh, Dungan from the local area who had been listening, and he took Elias off to the side and, and spent time with him in a number of months. And a few years later, um, Eli well, Elias stayed, and um, he encouraged the people to use the 1689 along with the additions of his father. And so that's, um, that's how we got them. And that's how some Baptists have believed historically in, in a third sacrament or ordinance. All right? Now you don't have to listen to my next uh, podcast because that's probably what it's going to be about. Okay. Questions about any of that? Nobody ask him anything or he'll go off on history again. Don't ask him anything. Who knows where foot washing was instituted by Christ? Anybody know? John 13? Yeah, John 13. 
Um, and he even promises there'll be blessing with it. Um, because it, But it's not a sacrament because it doesn't point to Christ and his benefits. Now, it has value. Um, it reminds us that servant-mindedness is an integral part of the Christian life. Um, serving each other is, is ordinary church life. Now, we don't see the apostles anywhere in the rest of the New Testament or the early church. They don't continue this as a ritual, but obviously the point of it is still with us. What about laying on of hands? Does anyone know where that is usually supported from by people who propose it? Timothy? Well, it is mentioned there. Yes, that's good. I hadn't thought of that. Yep. That's one place where it's mentioned, although Keach would say that's a different use of the laying on of hands. But, well, does anyone remember my, apparently not, uh, my sermons from Hebrews 6, 1 to 3? Is it Hebrews 6? Yes, Hebrews 6. That's exactly right, right? It's listed as one of the six foundations of Christian doctrine. Whoa. So as I argued at the time, whatever it is, it must be important. That doesn't make it a sacrament, but it must be something important, right? In fact, those six principles were so important to certain groups of Baptists um, in the 1600s and 1700s that they actually laid those six principles out as the basis of their churches. And they became known as, this is really catchy, can you imagine? Six Principal Baptists. Oh yeah, it's got a real ring to it. There were Baptists who agreed with them, except on the laying on of hands. And so they came up with an even catchier title for their groups of churches. That's right, Five Principal Baptists. Yes, we're not very good at this, are we? Um... But a number of the churches, especially in the Philadelphia area, the Welsh churches tended to practice these things and uh, wrote tracts about it. And uh, for quite some time, for quite a number of years, uh, followed, followed this. All right. Let's go on to question four. Do the sacraments have grace in themselves? This is to further answer Wes's question, really. Do the sacraments have grace in themselves? The short answer, children, is no, they contain no inherent value. No inherent value. Virtue, sorry, virtue. This is to argue against the Roman teaching. They say that if the sacrament is done in the right way, which is very precisely as the church prescribes, and with the right intention by the priest, and the priest has been properly ordained, then there will automatically, in every case, be an operation of, give, of the giving of grace from God to the person. All right? And that grace is contained in the sacrament itself. As the sacrament operates, it operates. In other words, as it happens, grace is, is given. And of course, we deny this. We don't believe that 
the sacraments are automatic dispensers of grace. Uh, No one but God is the storehouse of grace, not even his ordained uh, elements of the sacraments. He is the only giver of grace, and things or actions, even God-ordained sacraments, never give grace due to their own nature. This explains why you can be in worship and partake of something that outwardly looks like the supper, for example, and not receive grace. We know this must be true because of 1 Corinthians 11. Remember, Paul says, what you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. It's not. This is for your harm, not for your good. They didn't receive grace. They received judgment. And it was a very physical judgment. Questions about that? I might have... Wes, go ahead. Yes. I think that's a wonderful case in the Bible where you have the same administer, the same elements coming from the same body of believers with two different results. Yes. So, I mean, you can't narrow it down to the right guy at the right time and the right way right. gives you grace. I mean, because you think about everyone else, except for the, like, the only difference was the recipients. Right. It wasn't the administration of it. Right. Yes, very good. Those are good comments. Um, this is why we try to take care. We, we don't want to harm um, unbelieving visitors to worship. And so we really do desire for them to let the, let the plate pass, for example, if, if, they, don't, if they don't recognize the body, <laughs> if they don't recognize Christ in the elements. Um, it's a very serious thing. It's why some groups, like uh, some of the Brethren groups, especially the Plymouth Brethren, were known for this. They would gather first thing on Sunday morning to have the Lord's Supper, and and unless you were a member of the local congregation, you simply were not even you weren't even allowed in the meeting, uh, let alone uh, to take the supper with them. And and that wasn't because they hated people. <laughs> it wasn't because they didn't like it, you know them. They didn't want to share. It was because they understood the significance. Um, The early church was rather famous for having a service that was divided in part uh, with the meal being a separate item and all the unbelievers, they were simply dismissed at that point. There were some things that the unbelievers were very welcome to be with them in, but when it came to the table, absolutely not. They were dismissed so that only believers were at the table. Um, what we try to do is what's called fence the table. We try to put up a barrier, not too high, not too low, that a thinking person will recognize where they stand. Some people argue that in the Corinthian church, the people who abused the uh, the elements were all non-Christians. I'm not sure that, I'm not convinced of that. Uh, I think it's fully possible for true believers to do that and to be spanked by their Heavenly Father um, in discipline for that. Um, But there are two views of that.
Question five. For the sacraments to be effective, is it necessary for the administrator to be holy? Is it necessary for the administrator to be holy? The short answer is no, although that is God's rule. That is God's rule. These are church ordinances and should be administered by holy men. However, when that is lacking, God can overcome this and give grace. Think about the case of Judas, clearly an unholy and unworthy man, and yet he participated in all the work of the apostles, including preaching, repentance, and baptizing. John chapter 4, verse 2. We have no reason to think that, well, 11 of the baptisms were good, but that one baptism obviously wasn't valid. We have no reason to think that these were ineffectual or had to be repeated later. That is because the man or the instrument administering the sacraments is really nothing, is really nothing in regard to grace. There's a very appropriate set of verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is this is verses 5 through 7. Who are these men that Paul is speaking with? He says, they are instruments through whom you came to believe. But of course, they didn't give faith. God gave the faith. And according to verse 6, made it grow. Well, then are these men anything? The answer is no. Verse 7. <laughs> the administrator is nothing. But God who grows us in grace, he's the effectual one. And just because one administrator is holier than another, and undoubtedly that's true, doesn't mean that, well, the sacraments he dispenses are more effectual. Now, God may bless his work more. That's absolutely possible. God normally uses holy means, not filthy means. But even a man as holy as Philip in baptizing Simon couldn't overcome Simon's sin, his unbelief, his wickedness that he was still enthralled in. Right? I know of a case of a Reformed Baptist pastor from probably mm, 25 years ago who um, committed adultery. And while in the midst of that, what we call, you know, an affair, he, um, he continued to preach, he continued to be a pastor. He even baptized some new converts into the church. Well, later when his sin came out and he was uh, disciplined, one of the things that really ate at this congregation, and I wasn't a member there, but I, I knew some of the other pastors and what a, what a terrible situation it was, what a grievous situation it was. The thing that was perhaps emotionally the most difficult was to have been was to have had some of their uh, teenage children baptized by this man, and to have been handed the holy supper every month. 
that was something that, frankly, they just, many of them just couldn't get over. Um, they had a right view, I think, of the holiness of what the office should have been. Uh, perhaps a bit too high a view of um, the sacramental process, but again, it's surely understandable in the circumstances why someone would be, uh, you know, righteously angry uh, about things like that. But that didn't invalidate those baptisms. It didn't mean that God didn't give grace to worthy recipients, to use the Bible's language, as they came by faith to Christ. They weren't coming by faith to the administrator. They were seeing Christ in the symbols, not the other man. And they could still partake of Christ. They were still connected to the vine by faith, and they could be fed, and they were fed. But of course, pastors should be especially careful um, for these things. One of the reasons I uh, so believe in a weekly supper is that it helps us keep short accounts. If you understand at all the seriousness of the supper, you will keep short accounts with each other and with God. That's a means of grace. All right, question six. Does the effectiveness of the sacraments depend on Christ? Yes, is the obvious answer. Yes, his blessing and presence, they are required. Right? But of course, he's promised that to us. In the Great Commission, he's promised to always be with his church. Even when their number is very, very small, Matthew 18, even two or three are properly gathered together as his church. That's a church context, not an individual context. Um, his presence, his promised presence is a reality. And um, the sacraments are blessed uh, by him. This is why we regularly ask for God to come among us on Sunday. I mean, we know he's promised. We know he will. But it reminds us of our great need. <laughs> We're not telling God anything he doesn't know, brothers and sisters. We're reminding ourselves of what we too easily forget, that we absolutely need Jesus to be with us if we are to profit from worship. Does the effectiveness of the sacraments depend on the Holy Spirit? Question seven. Yes, of course it does. His work and presence are also required. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, and we were all given one spirit to drink. And it's by the working of the spirit that the sacraments gain their effectiveness for us or are made effective to us. They become life-giving memorials of Christ. He, he is necessary. Because again, the sacrament has no grace in itself. And by ourselves, we're impotent. We need the Holy Spirit if we are to take spiritual profit. Zechariah 4.6 is true not only at initial salvation, but in the ongoing Christian life. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Salvation, past, present, future, is all of the Lord. 